About 20 years ago, the Bank of Japan slashed its interest rate to 0% in an attempt to avoid deflation to try to stabilize Japan's fragile economy. For similar reasons, the so-called zero interest rate policy, or ZERP, was adopted about 10 years later by central banks in the US, the UK, and the rest of Europe. In fact, actually, the ECB went even further, that's the European Central Bank, and as rates sank below zero, it's currently minus a half a percent, the acronym NERP developed, negative interest rate policy. Are there ways that people can move around being affected by negative interest rates? And the answer is yeah. I'm Richard Parkinson at the Treasury Today Group, and as with every podcast we produce, our aim is to explore how Treasury departments build strategies for success in an ever-changing and very challenging world. In all the territories I mentioned, it's been low interest rates or negative interest rates ever since. And it's likely to stay this way until inflation starts hitting what some refer to as the Goldilocks zone of 2 to 2.5%. So is it best policy just to accept the status quo, riding it out for as long as it takes? Or is there a better way to optimise cash that does not involve chasing yield regardless of risk? To get to the bottom of the ZERP-NERP conundrum, we need to engage in some calm and rational discussion with an expert. So I'm at State Street Global Advisors to talk to Will Goldthwaite, a Vice President and Portfolio Strategist. Hello, Will. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Will, can you just briefly remind us why central banks like the Fed, Bank of England and the ECB, the European Central Bank, adopted these ZERP and NERP policies? I mean, certainly negative interest rates have been part of the theoretical discussion for years and years, right? And not to say that we haven't seen markets where there have been negative interest rates before 2008, 2009. We have. Um, And when you look back at various points in history, there's actually several examples of negative interest rates. So when you think about what a central bank's objective is, um, you know, in the case of the ECB, it's inflation. It has an inflation mandate. When you think about the Fed, it's both employment and inflation, steady inflation, full employment. Um, And so essentially those central banks are going to be using their monetary policy tools to try to stimulate to achieve those objectives. But would you say these policies have worked? They've been in place for quite a long time now. Have have they worked? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. So I don't know. In Europe, negative interest rates have been in effect for quite a while in Europe, and they've just gone further negative after many years of negative interest rates. And they've so they've essentially that is a signal to me that it's not working, and that they're trying to further stimulate. But the other thing that they're doing is they're doing quantitative easing. Yes, uh, right? I wanted to ask you that. Yeah, yeah. so um, quantitative easing is another tool that a central bank has to manipulate interest rates, um, you know, to pull interest rates lower, to stimulate lending um, and try to stimulate growth. Um, in the U.S., you might argue that they did work. In the U.S., it wasn't negative. It was zero. Um, the Fed had policy at, uh, you know, zero to 25 basis points from 2009 to two, or two, late 2008 to 2015. But was it necessarily the Fed that was responsible or was it a whole host of things? So I think the answer is probably a whole host of things. Um, so I'm not going to say that negative interest rates 
don't work. I'm just going to say that they are not the only thing that's sort of driving um, policy and that ultimately there might be other impediments that are going to impact uh, the growth of an economy or inflation within an economy that might not necessarily be monetary policy related. Now, you, you touched on quantitative easing there, and, and that's something that the European Central Bank has just reintroduced. Yeah. I mean, can they do that? I mean, is it going to work? Because surely, after being in place for a while, everyone's taken advantage of that quantitative easing in yeah. a way. Yeah. Japan is probably a great example of how they've implemented quantitative easing for quite a while. In fact, going so far as to buy equities, going so far as to take, you know, upwards of 50 or more percent of JGBs out of the market, um, 50% of the total supply. Um, And so quantitative easing is definitely a tool. It's not an unfamiliar tool. Um, Central banks have used it historically prior to this point. I think the part that I find fascinating, and it's part of it's been part of our discussion of recent, um, is that, okay, so all of these new regulations made the too big to fail essentially made that no longer was an institution too big to fail. In other words, they put in regulatory reforms that have increased capital requirements, increased liquidity, increased funding metrics, so that these large banking institutions are, are can essentially unwind if they get themselves into trouble. Okay, so that's out of the market. But now what we're seeing is central banks are coming in and essentially doing quantitative easing, which essentially is buoying um, a lot of debt in the market. Uh, and, and so is that then creating systemic risk? And we've seen what happened when the Fed tried to unwind um, their quantitative easing or, or they implemented quantitative tightening. And we had quite a little repo funding challenge in the U.S., which then the Fed had to correct by essentially re-implementing a purchase program. They're not calling it quantitative easing. Um, They're simply adding liquidity to the market. But at the same time, they're essentially coming in and saying, okay, something broke, we'll fix it. Um, And I think that creates sort of this systemic risk in the event that the, the central banks ultimately want to unwind a lot of this quantitative easing. Or is this just something that's going to be in perpetuity? And I think that's a a very interesting question when we think about the future of monetary policy and will central banks simply be asset owners from now on um, because they can't afford to let this unwind. There's too much debt in the system now to create a a supply-demand mismatch. Now, the, the, the low interest rate environment that we've had, or even negative interest rate environment, um, also makes it quite difficult for investors. So what is your uh, thought there? You know, what, what should investors be doing? Because they can't just chase yield, because mm. that will come with a lot of extra risk. Yeah, and yet we think they are. Um, chasing yield, chasing returns. Um, I mean, I've had dozens of conversations over the years about folks looking to just put a little bit more risk in their portfolio than what might otherwise be allowed to try to mitigate um, negative interest rates or try to add a little bit yield in what is an already challenging yield environment. And we know that we've seen a knock-on effect there, right? So we know that we've seen um, the investor that used to just be in 
invested in money market instruments. Maybe they're going out into the short-term bond space. Someone that was in short-term bond might be looking for a little bit longer durations. Someone that was in the bond space is now looking in the equity space. Somebody that was in the equity space is now looking in the private equity space. Um, and so when you talk to folks that are in all of these different you know, asset classes, you hear constantly how they're awash in cash and they've got money to put to work and they're trying to find the deals. And, you know, perhaps the most recent example um, of these unicorns that the, the tech sector is chasing in the U.S. is an example of how accounting metrics might have gotten a little distorted as far as trying to justify valuations. So from that standpoint, I do think quantitative easing is, is having an effect, but I think it's also adding risk to the system where folks are, are trying to chase yields. So the first thing, and I think the most important thing that investors can do, is they can look at what their cash flows are and then potentially sort of segmenting that cash. And we've seen this quite a bit of late. So that's really the advice we, we want to share with clients is um, potentially looking at the risk of your investment and then potentially bifurcating that, uh, that investment pool. And, and when you talk to them about planning and looking forward in this sort of NERP-ZERP environment, do you think that they should be assuming that this is going to stay in place for a long term? Uh, should they be planning for these low and negative interest rates long term? That's a really interesting one. So I, I'll ask the question a little bit differently. Um, why will Christine Lagarde raise rates in Europe? And so will it be because she's seen inflation move higher? Mm, it seems somewhat unlikely. Will it be because she thinks that negative interest rates are causing more harm than good? Not sure about that. Uh, I guess that's possible. Or will she stop quantitative easing, um, you know, which essentially was just put back into effect? And I, I think all of those questions you know, ultimately will be answered, but it's going to take quite a while. Um, so then the next one that I would consider would be the Bank of Japan. I don't quite see how the Bank of Japan is going to have anything but negative interest rates in the near term, um, just given how much and how hard they've tried to stimulate growth and stimulate inflation. But I think the demographics in that country are more of a leading indicator um, than anything else. In other words, aging population, more conservative in their spending habits, cost of living particularly expensive, you know, just harder to sort of see growth buoying, you know, interest rates higher. So I, I think that's how I look at it. In the U.S., you know, the U.S. is, is interesting because we've just gone into this short-term easing pattern where they fed eased rates three times. And those were what the uh, Jay Powell referred to as insurance cuts. So essentially, he was trying to, to head off the uh, a potential downturn in economic growth. And I think it, you know, it had an effect. And then he's implemented this uh, purchase program in the short-term markets to stabilize those yields. So I think 
in the near term, I think the chance of a hike is certainly less than an ease in the United States. So to answer your question, I don't think we're going to see any change in monetary policy out of those three institutions that will have any sort of meaningful results um, on negative interest rates in the near and medium term. And the near term would be in the next year, and the medium term would be in the next sort of one to three years. And the Bank of England? The Bank of England, um, you know, the UK economy is actually in very good shape. Uh, and I think if it wasn't for the Brexit negotiations, I think interest rates would be much higher. You know, the UK has done a, a good job of correcting some leverage issues in the market in doing a, a better job uh, than other developed markets of, of balancing their budget. And so I think interest rates would be significantly higher um, had it not been the Brexit situation hanging out there. And as it relates to that, there's just so many unknowns as far as outcomes go there, right? Um, we could end up with a situation where Brexit occurs, but negotiations are put in place so that we end up with a situation that looks very similar to what the UK has now. But I, I don't necessarily see a lot to upset what looks like generally a very strong economic picture aside from this negotiation. Okay, so now treasurers listening to this are going to be thinking, what else should I be doing? Mm -hmm. The other thing that certainly in Europe, you should be obviously trying to look at deposit opportunities to try to mitigate negative yields. Um, you should be looking at, you know, ultra short strategies. You should look at stress testing around those ultra short strategies to determine whether the drawdown is something that's sustainable. And yeah, I mean, let's face it, we've been talking about bucketing cash for 20 years, right? 30 years, probably. So it's definitely not a new idea. But I think there's new energy around it because of what I said earlier, whereas it used to be like, yeah, yeah, I'll bucket my cash, and then no one ever does anything about it. And then all of a sudden, you see that your cash is earning negative 50 basis points, and you're like, oh, maybe I should look at that. So um, that's for sure. But that aside, I think one of the things that is always good to keep an eye on is sort of innovation in cash. And what's being done? What, what's going to help a treasurer manage certain deadlines that they have? Um, what sort of settlement restrictions are they constrained by now? And is there something that can be done about that? Um, what sort of uh, currency challenges do they have? Do they own currency in particular markets that is um, challenging for them to manage? So when we think about some of the new technology that's coming out, right, everyone's heard about Bitcoin. At this point, everyone's heard about Libra, Facebook's Libra. But there's other settlement technologies that are coming into the market that's certainly going to make things interesting in the next couple of years as far as how certain fund providers or how certain cash managers are able to utilize those things. And so I would definitely keep an eye on that in the developments around technology. I really think technology is something that treasurers need to pay attention to. You know, there's a lot of disruption going on in the market right now. And so I, I do feel as though there's technology out there that treasurers should investigate and look at. And and really, the investment in technology is something we know is, is honestly, I don't think it can be enough, right? You just have to be really careful about how you allocate that spend. But ultimately, what it can do for you um, is amazing in certain cases. And there's a lot going on right now with blockchain as far as the ease by which we settle, uh, the timeliness of settle. So I think that's definitely something folks should keep an eye on. Will, thank you very much. Yeah. That was uh, uh, some very interesting perspectives on this interest rate environment we're living in. Yeah, well, thank you very much for having me. Appreciate the conversation. 
Well, that was Will Goldthwaite, Vice President and Portfolio Strategist at State Street Global Advisors, offering some clear and insightful views and some good practical advice on what many treasurers should be doing in a rather tricky and frustrating interest rate environment. I'm Richard Parkinson from the Treasury Today Group. Thank you for listening to this podcast, brought to you by Treasury Today and State Street Global Advisors. We'd love to hear from you, so do get in touch either directly or via our website. And don't forget to subscribe so you can keep an eye out for new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.